Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Well, we talk about the broad swath of technology and its progenitors in Silicon Valley. Rarely are we talking about great breakthroughs. A new app for dating or dog walking, the 100th messaging app, or new ways for enterprise collaboration are hardly the stuff of Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Robert Noyce, or Bill Hewlett. But every once in a while, there is a new, new thing that really matters, like the PC or the smartphone or Microsoft Word and Excel. For years, many thought something called virtual reality might be that thing. What was not known is that it would take a 19-year-old dreamer, one of the oddest characters in a world that celebrates oddness, to make it a reality. The fact that Mark Zuckerberg, the man that the European Union just called a technology gangster, would co-opt it, only adds to this important chapter of Legends of Silicon Valley. Like other legends, this one is told by my guest, Blake Harris. Blake Harris is the best-selling author of Console Wars, which is currently being adapted for television. He's written for ESPN, Fast Company, and numerous other publications. And it is my pleasure to welcome Blake Harris back to this program to talk about his new book, The History of the Future, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution that Swept Virtual Reality. Blake Harris, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. That was an awesome intro. I'm jealous as a writer. There's so much good stuff in there. <laughs> well, thank you. Know, you, you mentioned the new, new thing, and my favorite Michael Lewis book, of, I love them all, but my favorite's always been the new, new thing, which I feel like is one of his lesser-known ones and a big inspiration for me writing this. And it's just interesting, too, what you're talking about, that you know, Palmer Lucky is an odd character in a place that values oddness or historically has, and maybe we'll get to it, but he's, he's no longer at the company because of that oddness. I right. think it's significant in a lot of ways. Before we get into the specifics of the story, I want to talk about virtual reality conceptually first, in that I think if you sure. talk to most people, they would think that this is something that's been with us for a long time because it's been talked about for so long. But in fact, the reality of virtual reality has been very difficult to obtain. Talk about that. Sure. So it has been with us for a long time in actuality. And I'll distinguish that from you know, science fiction lore where VR and AR and all these things are a big part of it. But you know, stretching back to the 1960s is really the first time when um, Ivan Sutherland and other um, academics and researchers were looking into VR. And then commercially, it started to become available or at least uh, enter the zeitgeist in the 80s and 90s with uh, Jaron Lanier and VPL Research and what was then called the iPhone, though spelled E-Y-E. Um, and, you know, there were, I, I, I'm 36 years old. I'm a child of the 80s and 90s, and I remember growing up during that time. And if you had pulled me aside and asked me what are the chances that VR becomes the next big thing, I would have probably said like 100%. <laughs> it just seemed like that was what was happening. But, uh, you know, to your point, there's been a lot of starts and stops with the technology. And after a bunch of hype in the 90s, it basically went away. And one of the things I love most about the story, at least the beginning of it, and sort of setting the stage and getting into it and getting to know Palmer Lucky, was that when he was spending his life devoted to trying to resurrect VR or tinker with VR, it was at a time when virtual reality was considered like a technological punchline not that different than flying cars or jetpacks, like this thing that's always been promised to us but never really happened. And, uh, you know, as, as is often the case, uh, what makes these things work, what makes these products work and take off and capture a hold of our cultural attention is a combination of luck and technology and marketing and all these other things. 
But, uh, you know, part, so certainly breakthroughs in technology are a big part of why it is now working or at least becoming viable. But a lot of it, too, was just timing. And the fact that when Palmer Lucky was working on his headset, you know, the original prototype for the Oculus Rift, um, he was one of only a few people in the world who still actually cared about VR and saw its potential. What was it about VR that was so difficult to accomplish? Um, that's a great question. I mean, I think that it's because um, it, it's a combination of so many different technologies. Um, you know, you have like the, just in a typical virtual reality headset, you know, you have the display, which is what you're actually looking at in your eyes and what you're supposed to feel like makes you present elsewhere. And then there's the tracking technology, um, which is so that when you turn your head, um, the world doesn't move with you. So it's not like you have a television in front of your face, you know, like as in the real world, when you turn your head, the world doesn't move as you do. Um, and then there's the software hardware integration and just the latency of moving that information. So it's just an amalgam of so many different technologies. And that was part of what made it fun. I mean, I imagine it made it difficult for Oculus, but fun for me to think that like, you know, when they first started this company and were trying to figure out, like, how do we actually make this work? They had to bring in experts um, and, and enthusiasts from all different walks of life. Like one of the, you know, main characters in the book is a guy named Steve Laval, who's a robotics, um, who was a robotics professor at University of Illinois and sort of a world-renowned roboticist. And you'd think, like, what does robotics have to do with virtual reality? And then if you actually think about it, it's like, well, it's actually very similar it's related to computer vision, except that in virtual reality, we are the robot as opposed to it being some sort of um, non-human, tangible thing that we have to move. And, and enter this Palmer Lucky. Tell us who he was. Sure. So in, uh, in early 2012, Palmer Lucky was a 19-year-old kid uh, living in Long Beach, California, and he was living in a 19-foot camper trailer that, um, <laughs> that I described in the book. And... <laughs> Uh, I'm proud of this because it's very true and gives a great visual about, uh, I, you know, he's living in this, this trailer that is basically like Walter White's mess van on Breaking Bad, except Palmer's trailer is devoted to virtual reality headsets instead of, you know, creating drugs. Um, and so he's this kid who had been homeschooled. He's definitely eccentric, uh, interesting, humble guy uh, living in the, you know, living in this trailer in the driveway of his parents home or it's a split home where his family has the bottom floor and uh his parents are not very happy that he seems to be quote wasting his time on this uh vr stuff and uh he is taking some college classes and then he decides to start a company he thinks that the technology has come far enough and he's made a bunch of innovations with this oculus rift headset and he uh you know i have him describe in his words that he wants to give this his chance, you know, he sees Oculus as his tilt at trying to finally make VR happen. And uh, boy, did it happen in, in a way that he did not expect. And how does a 19-year-old kid living in a trailer in Long Beach begin to start a company? Um, as, as I'm sure is true with a lot of your guests who are part of startups or chronicle startups, you know, with a lot of help is really the answer. Um, even though Palmer is the one who got a lot of fame and, and a lot of money, and, and I would say deservedly so, um, at least in terms of fame. Who knows about the money stuff? But, uh, but you know, it, it was not a one-man show, Oculus. It was very much a team effort. And, and you know, there's, there's two key turning points early on. One is that Palmer, you know, the book starts off in the first chapter with Palmer and his trailer tinkering, soldering, and, 
you know, making VR stuff for an audience of basically no one. And then out of the blue, he gets a message from John Carmack, the legendary game maker, best known for Doom and Quake and Wolfenstein and all those first-person shooters. And John is looking to demo a virtual reality version of one of his games at the upcoming E3 video game trade show. And he's heard about Palmer's headsets. And then after that connection, John ends up realizing that this kid has actually made a headset that is much cheaper and much better than everything else out there. Um, and so that sort of um, boosts Palmer Lucky and his headset and his dreams of starting Oculus from obscurity to uh, the, you know, the radar, at least in the games industry. And then at that point, he is presented with an option that I'm sure a lot of young entrepreneurs are find some success are faced with, which is to sell his idea or to, in that case, to go work at Sony and help them with VR or to start his own company. And it's a really tough decision for him, especially because he'd always loved Sony and that was kind of his dream job. But he ends up being uh, persuaded by uh, a group of entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurs led by Brendan Arib, who had previously founded Scaleform and worked at Gaikai and, uh, and, and a couple of Brendan's longtime colleagues and friends. And they persuade Palmer to you know, followed his dreams and launched this company, Oculus, and uh, they help and really drive the messaging of, uh, of a Kickstarter campaign that ends up becoming one of the most successful of all time. And then I think it's like within six weeks of meeting him for the first time, they end up uh, launching this Kickstarter, raising millions of dollars and sort of beginning to resurrect virtual reality. What was, if there was a singular breakthrough that really led him ahead of everyone else, what was it? What was it that he did in that in that trailer that really put him steps ahead of everyone else working in this area? That's a really good question. I mean, there was a lot of things, of course. Um, I think that the biggest one, though, is almost uh, conceptually that um, you know when when you have a virtual reality headset, you know, we think of the VR headset, whether it's goggles, glasses, a big lung, you know, lumbering thing, whatever. That's obviously a piece of hardware. And then what you're seeing is a piece of software. And, and since the 90s, um, most of the innovations to virtual reality had been made to the hardware, um, you know, better lenses, trying to give you better images. But um, Palmer, who is a hardware guy, designed the hardware in a way to maximize the innovations in software. So it was almost like this perfect peanut butter and jelly connection when John Carmack, who's one of the greatest software developers in the world, reached out to him and um, and what I mean, what I mean by that is, you could do a lot of, you know, like if you actually look at the image that's being projected in the headset, it it, it wasn't like a an image that would make sense, but you could um, correct for that distortion and do other things to make sure that it would look good to the viewer in the software. And so they were sort of able to maximize the computing power um, by these innovations that Palmer had made. Talk a little bit about the challenges that, that he and, and his cohorts faced in trying to do this to scale and trying to really create a company around this. Sure. I mean, so many challenges. I think that, you know, whereas my previous book, Council Wars, is a, is a story of, you know, head-to-head uh, head rivalry, Sega versus Nintendo, this is very much different. This is a story about revolution and trying to drive one. And whenever, you know, you have a revolution uh, in any context, it's really just about um, disrupting and upending the status quo. So they are dealing with a public and an investor community, most importantly, that thinks that VR has failed and that it's a waste of money. And a large part of the reason that people 
felt that way, especially in the VC community, um, is not just all the years of historical evidence that VR had failed, but it's this thing, um, it's sort of this chicken and egg problem with software and hardware. Um, and I was, you know, I was talking to someone earlier today and they, they likened the innovation of virtual reality to color television or maybe even to the radio, like a, you know, it's a new medium. And as much as we come, we came to love those mediums, me, especially loving television, you know, those mediums are worthless if you just have the hardware, but if, if you don't have television shows, then there's no point in owning a television. And so it's really this problem of how do you get people to create VR content when there are no VR headsets out there? And why would anyone make a VR headset when there's no VR content out there? And so you got this chicken and egg problem. And one of the things that I would say was, was brilliant and a real game changer early on was that Brendan Areeb, that entrepreneur um, who went on to become the CEO of Oculus, he uh, decided that they should make this headset not to the consumers, at least not yet, but purely just make it for game developers and really focus on the game industry and, uh, uh, and particularly getting, you know, gaining alliances with, uh, with Epic Games, which makes the Unreal game engine, and with Unity, which makes a game engine, so that they could empower anyone to make games. And therefore, um, you know, you're selling these headsets pretty much at cost, but what you're doing is creating an entire ecosystem of content. And, you know, regardless of what happens to Oculus, now that they're owned by Facebook and in the years ahead, you know, I think historically that's going to always be their most important contribution. And the reason that a lot of people, myself included, would say that, you know, VR wouldn't have progressed if not for them. You know, they basically brought this to thousands of developers who then created content that went out to tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of consumers. We talked a little bit earlier about how odd Palmer Lucky was. Talk a little bit about his collaboration as this company started to evolve what it was like for everybody else working with him. Sure. So he is really, um, um, a, so he's a charismatic guy. Um, one of the things I always liked about him as someone who always wears shorts and not pants, even in cold New York city weather is that he, he wears shorts and uh, sandals all the time. That's probably why we got along. Um, mostly joking there, but he, but you know, he, he often wears a Hawaiian t-shirt. Um, he just, he, 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 he dresses differently and he thinks differently. You know, I think a big part of the story and why I think it will have universal value, especially to entrepreneurs in any uh, walk of industry, is that uh, it's just a story of what happens after you sell your company. And, of course, you are rewarded with the money. And, that's why, and you know, you sold it. But it also changes the mission and also changes your place within the company. And so after the uh, acquisition by Facebook um, almost five years ago now, uh, they acquired Oculus for almost $3 billion. Um, it really, you know, it stopped being fun is the way a lot of people described it to me. And it also made everyone um, almost replaceable and, and not because they weren't talented enough, but just because there was not, you know, they scaled up to your point and now they had a thousand people and, and everyone could really pitch in and do different things. So Palmer was, uh, you know, for a while, he was really focused on creating the, the Oculus's, uh, uh, hand controller, the Oculus Touch, and working with a team led by Ahmed Binstock and Naraf Patel. And, uh, and then after that was launched, you know, they were focused on ecosystem issues. And then I don't know how much you want to get into it, but uh, he, by, in September 2016, he became the most hated man in Silicon Valley. Talk about why. <laughs> All right. So uh, I remember being in my apartment here and uh, getting a bunch of messages on my phone that's like, dude, you need to check this out or you're, 
you know, your book is about to completely change. And people sending me this article from the Daily Beast and the headline of this Daily Beast article on September 22nd, 2016. This was seven weeks before the presidential election in the United States. And the headline was Facebook billionaire secretly funding Trump's meme machine. And uh, the implication and said uh, implicitly and explicitly in some times and then very much said explicitly in the 15 minutes after by a bunch of other outlets and tech influencers was that Palmer Luffy was responsible for every terrible thing that you've seen on the internet in the past six months in support of Donald Trump. So anything that was, um, you know, misogynistic, racist, homophobic, all these terrible memes that I'm sure we've come across in some ways that Palmer was this guy bankrolling that and funding it. And then as sadly often happens to be, you know, as sadly seems to happen more and more, um, this narrative almost sort of became gospel just because enough people reported it, though it wasn't actually true. Um, and then six months after that, Palmer was no longer at the company that he had founded. What was it that, that Zuckerberg saw in Oculus that, that really led him to buy it? That's a really good question because, you know, when I started working on this book, Facebook was obviously a gigantic company, an important company, but I think that over the four years of my writing it, their, their role in the world has sort of changed. They've become even more successful. And, and, and a lot of the public, especially those investigating them, have really come to question their motives and the way that they go about doing their business. And, and I mentioned that and go through the whole ramble as a prelude to saying that what Zuckerberg saw in VR, other than it being cool and the technology that he liked, was the chance to finally um, make up for what he had always perceived as a mistake um, in not in Facebook, not getting into mobile earlier, in particular, not you know launching an operating system or a platform like Google and Apple did. You know, Google with Android and Apple with iOS. Um, Mark always felt that Oculus, oh sorry, Mark always felt that Facebook was beholden to those platform companies and OS companies, and uh, he wanted he saw this as the next you know wave in computing, and he wanted to be first, and he wanted to hold all the cards. And, uh, you know, it remains to be seen whether that's going to happen. But I think that those are interesting motives. Um, and, and it's interesting to consider what the world would be like if, if Mark ends up succeeding in that vision and owning the OS and the platform and, and people having to be beholden to him and, and his whims. Before the politics, talk about what the relationship was between Palmer Lucky and Zuckerberg. Um, you know, mutually respectful. I think that um, this is speculative on my part because I never talked to Mark about this, but, you know, I think Mark saw a lot of himself in Palmer, or at least a lot of people have made comparisons. Uh, you know, the Facebook campus that I visited sometimes, the address, as a lot of people know, is one hacker way. Mark considers himself a hacker at heart, or at least he used to, and Palmer was a hardware hacker, a homeschooled tinker, and, uh, and, and you know, Mark started his company in the dorm room, as we all know from the great David Fincher movie. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Palmer started this company from a trailer. Um, they both really seem to just have this passion and vision for the future. So I think he saw a lot of himself. And, and Palmer, um, though, I, you know, he was not a big Facebook user. Uh, a lot of people in Oculus weren't really big Facebook users. But they all loved the fact that Mark loved VR. Uh, because, again, you know, going back to that time period, this was a period where um, – a lot, not a lot of people believed in VR, and Mark was willing to put his money where his mouth was. In addition to buying Oculus for $3 billion, he's also invested about $3 billion over the past five years to try to make this happen. So, like, 
from from Palmer's perspective, you know, the most important thing in his life is always his work. And so if people help him with his work, they're, they're good people in his book. And so Mark was helping to bring this vision to life. And so Palmer had a very good opinion of him. And I suspect that that opinion has changed in the past couple of years. Was Palmer surprised that his politics and what he said politically created the storm that it did? Absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, what, one of my favorite parts of the book, and, and one of the reasons that I think I would never write fiction, because nonfiction and the truth is just stranger than fiction, is two years prior to this whole storm, um, someone was criticizing a comment that John Carmack, who I mentioned earlier, had made that I guess you could describe as political or seemingly to enter the political fray. And Palmer responded in April of 2014 to this person and said, um, when he said, like, you know, I guess the person that emailed him to say that you should make John Carmack remove his tweet or stop talking about politics. And Palmer said, I would never tell anyone to stop talking about politics. You know, I don't want to be one of those companies that makes employees not talk about things that they personally believe and everyone's entitled to believe their own thing. And then, you know, flash forward two years and he's in a situation where Facebook does not want him talking about what he believes to the extent that Mark Zuckerberg actually, um, forces him to support a different candidate than he actually plans to in the presidential election. Um, and so, so I think it was pretty shocking um, from Palmer's perspective, regardless of how it even played out, just politics is irrelevant to how you do your job. And, uh, and, and I think that historically that had been the, pers- you know, that had been the sort of the predominant belief in Silicon Valley. Um, it's always been a very liberal leading place, but I never felt like it was to the extent that that was, you know, a, a mandatory requirement to participate in, in what was going on there. But I think that's sort of changed in the past few years. And, and Palmer's, Palmer's case is just a great proxy for how Silicon Valley has changed over the past five years. Talk a little bit about his, Palmer's comments and how it became the firestorm that it did. Because in many ways, the criticism of it and the way Facebook and Zuckerberg specifically reacted created more of a problem than might have been there initially sure so um so palmer donated about nine ninety one hundred dollars or let's just call it ten thousand dollars to an organization called nimble america nimble america launched i think five days before this all broke so you know it was a very young organization with no track record and their goal was to put up um meme like images on billboards across the country which you know is basically called advertising. Um, and, and Palmer did this anonymously, um, which I find interesting in itself because uh, about five months before that, Palmer had attended a rally of Donald Trump, who he had planned to support in the presidential election and was interviewed um, by NBC, I believe. So, you know, he had no problem at that point being affiliated with Donald Trump. Um, and then there was, uh, and so what happened between then and uh, five and five months later was, Peter Thiel um, was revealed or outed or whatever the language was to describe that he was supporting Donald Trump. And, and so many people at Facebook wanted, uh, wanted Peter Thiel to be removed from the Facebook board for his political beliefs. And, uh, you know, Reed Hastings, who's also on the Facebook board and is the you know, head of Netflix, he uh, wrote a letter that had been revealed in the New York Times last year um, saying that voting for Trump this is indicative of terrible judgment and Peter shouldn't be, not be a member for the board. So Palmer thought, you know, it's best that I support Trump anonymously. And so he made this $10,000 donation 
And um, I, I'm sure that that alone would have been newsworthy and potentially that alone would have led to his exit. But the way the story was reported was not like that. It was that, um, you know, that this nimble or- miracle organization with some white supremacist operation and they were doing all sorts of terrible things. And then, you know, to the point that you made earlier, the way that Facebook and Zuckerberg responded ended up making the situation much worse, at least in my opinion. And so when this all came out, I think that time and time again, uh, or maybe I'm just an optimist who likes the truth, but I feel like the, the proper response to a PR controversy is often just being honest and explaining what actually happened. And maybe some people will like it and some people won't, but at least you're not going to keep, um, you know, biting yourself in the butt and, and creating more problems. And instead of, you know, Palmer originally wanted to say that, uh, that he was a Trump supporter, that here's what the organization actually was, here's how it was misreported. But uh, that was not deemed acceptable by Facebook. And the statement that actually went out, which took 24 hours to get, uh, you know, to actually go up. So the firestorm just increased. And this was drafted personally by Mark. Um, didn't really answer any questions. And it said that Palmer was planning to support Gary Johnson, which he was not, or at least had not previously been planning to. Um, and then that led to a situation where, you know, most people, uh, most left-leaning people dislike Palmer for seeming to be supporting Trump, and most right-leaning people dislike Palmer for seeming to be a liar or unwilling to publicly say that he supported Trump. And, uh, and then to add insult to injury, Palmer was uh, exiled from the office. He only ever returned to the office for one or two days and was uh, barred from speaking with his colleagues and explaining the situation. So it just created this whole situation of uncertainty, confusion, and, and really with lack of information, everyone at Oculus and Facebook assumed that what they were reading was true. So they assumed the worst. How did Facebook and Zuckerberg specifically screw this up so badly? Um, awesome question. One that I've thought about so much over the past two years. Um, I think that one, it's, um, it's sort of indicative of, of how I feel about Facebook in general. And I have you know, very mixed feelings, and I'm grateful for them making all this investment into VR as someone who likes VR. Um, and I don't think of them as an evil corporation, as some people do, but they have philosophical leanings and, and, vote and actions that I, I don't really like. And the one that always comes to mind for me is that Facebook believes that they know what's best for you. Um, and maybe in some cases they do, but they don't, basically they don't give the user the option to select things. Like you can't really control much of the algorithm. They, they are like, no, no, we know what you want. Um, and I mentioned all that because, you know, I, it, how I think that Mark and Facebook really screwed it up was that they didn't just let Palmer or encourage him and help him put out an honest statement. They thought that if, if one of their executives was affiliated with Donald Trump, that would be terrible, which I would argue is not true. I would argue that though I personally don't like Donald Trump and might be annoyed that half the country would think, okay, that's a good thing. Um, but they, um, you know, consistently just opted for a path of uh, dishonesty and, and, and something that really surprised me um, was just, you know, they lied to employees, they lied to me, and they just were not, they were not transparent. And this is a company that internally, as well as externally, has always um, preached this ethos of transparency and openness. And, you know, Mark speaks at town halls every week and seemingly will answer any question. Um, but when it came, when push came to shove and a real situation tested their principles, they just abandoned them. In many ways, this was the canary in the coal mine for so many of the problems that Facebook faces today. Absolutely. I'm glad that you made that observation because 
Um, I, you know, I definitely didn't set out to spend most of the last hundred pages focused on politics and this thing that doesn't really have that much to do with VR. And nor did I necessarily sp- plan to spend the final sections of the book focused almost exclusively on Palmer. But I felt that his experience is just such a great case study for a lot of the things that are happening today at Facebook, a lot of the hypocrisies over there, and a lot of the things that, frankly, we should be concerned about or at least keep watch of as Facebook continues to grow their market share and their their reach on the internet. Talk about how, in your view, this all affects VR, the evolution of Oculus within the Facebook family, and what does it say for the future of Palmer Lucky? Good question. I mean, the, I, I think it negatively. Uh, well, so VR was always sort of at risk of of uh, you know go, quickly going from hype and excitement to disappointment and the trough of illusionment just because that's how innovative technologies work, and VR has historically done that before, and perhaps it was faded just because of the cycle of how these things do often seem to go. But, but you know, I remember talking to a ton of people in the VR industry in the days after what happened with Palmer, and a lot of them uh, were only, like, half-joking at the time, but they thought, like, wow, is this going to kill VR? And it definitely slowed down the momentum. And, and part of that, too, is, is not just because people supported Palmer or felt that he had been mistreated, because, frankly, at the time, most people didn't have the facts and didn't think that. But, but I think that a big part is um, virtual reality. Part of the beauty of it is that it is such an intimate technology. You know, you're putting this thing on your face. It's, it's right there up with your eyes. And it actually tracks your head movement, your eye movement. There's so much tracking going on, which is what makes VR magical. But then when it's in the hands of a company like Facebook, you should be asking, can we trust what's happening with all this tracking information? Can we trust all these cameras in your home? And um, I think that what happened with Palmer and what we've seen over the past two years are give people plenty of reason to say no, or at least to say, well, let's hold up a minute. And, uh, and, and I think that's really how it has uh, sort of swerved the industry is just the, the you know, VR enthusiasts were already skeptical of Facebook for their reputation and for not really having a user-friendly product. But, uh, but the past few years have really exacerbated that opinion and made a lot of them feel like, oh, we were right to be skeptical and right to be angry when Oculus, quote-unquote, sold out to Facebook. What is Palmer Lucky doing now? Oh, yeah, I forgot to answer that part of the question. And, that, and that's good because, you know, to write this book, I had been given um, essentially unlimited access to speak with the founders and employees at Facebook and Oculus that were uh, focused on VR. That ended up... Uh, coming to an abrupt halt at the end, which is a story uh, for another day. <laughs> but, but, you know, I was in touch with Palmer um, almost every day during this whole experience and, you know, taking away the technological aspect or the what this all means aspect just on a human level was very fascinating to see someone go from being the cover boy for Wired and Popular Mechanics and this beloved so-called wonderkin to being, as Wired called him, the worst person in Silicon Valley. Um, and, and, you know, as much as he is a uh, brilliant, charismatic genius, there was a real sense that like, wow, my career is over. What am I going to do next? And, uh, and, and, you know, based on what happened later, he, you know, he went on to found another company called Onderal, which is a defense tech company that has been incredibly, incredibly successful in a short amount of time. So uh, people might say, oh, you know, it was always going to work out for Palmer because he has those skills. But, but I remember sort of living through it with him and it was definitely not faded that way. He couldn't get investors to talk to him. He couldn't get anyone to talk to him. He really was despised. So um, I guess that's a long-winded way of me saying that 
I, I'm glad that there's a happy ending because as I've been working on this for four years, I came to grow close relationships with many of the main characters and I have complex opinions about them, but I do wish for the best for them. And I would have been sad if, if, if fake news ended up derailing Palmer Lucky's career. And finally, is it your sense that virtual reality and the evolution of it will be impacted or, or not much by this story, by the nature of what happened here and by Facebook's involvement in it? Um, I think that Facebook's involved, you know, I think that Oculus uh, made a lot of historic contributions and selling to, uh, selling to Facebook will impact uh, the future of virtual reality in significant ways. Um, I think it remains to be seen in what ways, but, you know, just in the overgeneralized sense, on the one hand, you have Facebook being the biggest uh, investor in VR, uh, way more than anyone else in Silicon Valley. And then on the other hand, we have some of the issues I talked about where there's mistrust and concerns about them controlling the future of this technology. So uh, I think that the outcome will depend, you know, have it play a big role in how we end up looking back on this, but it will be absolutely one of those huge milestone moments, if not the biggest, um, that will alter the way that we think about the history of the future, I guess. Blake Harris, his book is The History of the Future, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution that Swept Virtual Reality. Blake, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jeff. I, hopefully I'll be back in four years after I finish the next book. <laughs> All right. Thank you. 